Well, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25, please. Acts 25, verse 1, please. A prisoner of Christ is the title of the message. Acts chapter 25, reading in verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking us as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong with the man, let them bring charges against him. After he had stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews, who had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing in their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Let's pray. Lord, help me to preach this message the way you want it to be preached. Help my friends to hear this message the way you want them to hear it. And oh God, as we saw in these videos, both in Cuba and at his house, help us to live it out as your prisoner, Jesus. Happy to be a prisoner of Christ. Happy to serve those in need in our community. Oh God, we need faith. We need to see you resurrected, Lord Jesus, in these pages We need to hear from you through this word. So speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. In 1732, two young Moravians in Germany by the name of Johann Daber and David Nietzschmann were speaking to a freed slave from the island of St. Thomas. His name was Antony. And Antony was sharing with Johann Daber and David Nietzschmann about the plight of between two and 3,000 slaves in the West Indies in the island of St. Thomas in the Caribbean. And he was sharing with them that these two to 3,000 slaves were being worked mercilessly on a sugarcane plantation. We saw the sugarcane in Cuba. And he said that these slaves had no testimony of Christ. And then he begged them with tears in his eyes. And he said, and among those slaves are my mother and father and sister. Would you please go and share the gospel with them? Johann Dauber was a potter. 
David Nietzschman was a carpenter. Two very ordinary men, but with an extraordinary God. And they began to pray with the other believers in the Moravian community in Germany. And they began to read the Bible. And the Holy Spirit began to move in their hearts. And they determined to go to the West Indies, to St. Thomas in the Caribbean, to preach the gospel to two to 3,000 slaves who had no testimony of Christ, to Antony's parents and sister. And I can't help but think as I begin this message that they were moved, yes, by the scriptures. They were moved, yes, by the Holy Spirit. But they were moved by Antony. Are we not moved by the faces we saw in these videos today? Problem is, in 1732, friends, things were not like they are today. You couldn't just get your passport, go hop on a flight from Germany to St. Thomas, arrive on the sun-soaked resort island, spend a week or two preaching the gospel, and fly back to Germany. No. St. Thomas in 1732 was not a resort island, but rather a cruel place of slave labor that fueled the sugar plantations, which produced rum that sold at huge profits all over the world. And getting there... Getting there was extremely dangerous. You would make this voyage on wooden ships with storms and pirates and disease ever present to wreck one's ship, to take one's possession, or even to end one's life. In addition to all of these dangers, the financial powers who controlled the sugar plantations and owned the slaves were not really interested in anyone going to preach to them about Jesus Christ. So initially, Dauber and Nietzschmann were denied permission to go minister God's word to the slaves. So they boldly declared that they would be willing to be sold into slavery. They said, sell us to the plantation owner on St. Thomas so we can go if that's the only way to reach these slaves. The story goes that they traveled from Germany to Copenhagen, Denmark, to appeal to the royal court when asked by von Plees the king of Denmark's chamberlain, kind of his chief of staff, how they would support themselves, Nietzschmann replied, we will work as slaves among the slaves. But, said von Plisch, that's impossible. It will not be allowed. No white man ever works as a slave. Very well, replied Nietzschmann. I'm a carpenter and will ply my trade. But what will the potter do? He will help me in my work. Soon after days, the entire king's court was on their side. The queen expressed her good wishes. The princess Amelie gave them some money and a Dutch Bible. Von Plisch himself slipped the few coins in a Nietzsche's pocket. The court physician gave them a spring lancet and showed them how to open a vein. The court chaplain espoused their cause and the royal cupbearer found them a ship on the point of sailing to St. Thomas. Leaving Copenhagen on October the 8th, 1732, These stories just really reveal our superficial, weak-kneed Christianity, don't they? At least they do to me. Sorry for the moment of emotion there. They arrived in St. Thomas two months later as captives of Christ, bound to his gospel, which they gladly shared with slave and free island. Paul, too, was a captive of Christ in Acts 25. He was a captive, literally a prisoner, because he had been in jail for two years. Remember the trial we spoke of last week. In fact, the 
three sermons that we've been preaching have been following Paul's trials. Literally, he's been on trial now for the last three sermons. The first trial was a, an ad hoc trial in front of a bunch of Jewish people who were going crazy and wanted to kill him and seized him in the temple. Corey preached about that trial from Acts 21, 27 to twenty-two thirty, in a message entitled, From Offense to Defense. Two weeks ago, Bentley preached about Paul's second trial before the Sanhedrin in Acts 22, 30 to 23, 35, in a message entitled, Resurrection Hope. And if you remember, in that trial... In Acts 23.11, I believe I've got the scripture here on the screen, the risen Lord Jesus came and stood right next to Paul. And this is what he said to Paul. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage for you, for as you, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Remember those words. So you must testify also in Rome. Last week, I preached Paul's third trial before Felix. Felix was Festus's predecessor, governors of Judea, Roman governors. To be a governor of Judea, your name had to begin with F. That's not true. I was just seeing if you're paying attention. You have Felix, you had Festus. Don't know the next guy's name. But Festus was Felix's successor. So Paul was before Felix in Acts 24, 1 to 27 in a message entitled, What Will You Say? And today we are now going to follow the last two of Paul's five trials that end the book of Acts. First before Festus, the new Roman governor of Judea in chapter 25, and then in chapter 26 before Agrippa, King Agrippa II, who was a Jewish king, but he was put in charge by the Romans. What is the theme that emerges from these five trials? It's this. Paul is a prisoner of Christ. Paul is a prisoner of Christ. He is a prisoner neither of the Roman Empire nor of the Jewish authorities. But Paul is a prisoner of Christ. He's bound to the gospel of Jesus Christ and he's on his way to Rome. Remember 2311? He must testify in Rome. You see, in all five trials, the Jews charged Paul with the very same three main categories of crimes, any, which, any one of which would have meant death if he were convicted of it. What were the three crimes? Well, look in your Bibles in chapter 25, verses 7 and 8. This is trial number four, and these crimes are going to be articulated by Paul in his defense. Chapter 25, verses 7 and 8. Are you there? Listen, if Dober and Nitschman can cross the ocean to preach the gospel, you can open your Bible and find Acts 25, 7 and 8 to read. And if you don't, look on with someone else. Acts 25, 7. When he had arrived, meaning Festus, The Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood before him, bringing many and serious charges against him, Paul, that they could not prove. Remember that. Verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any crimes. Listen, Paul is saying this. I am not a prisoner of Rome, nor am I a prisoner of the Jews, because I have not violated any law against the Jews. He was charged with violating the law, telling people not to obey the law now that they have had faith in Christ, the Jews. 
He said, I never said that. I said, you're not saved by the law, but if you're a Jew, you want to honor the law, but you're saved in Christ. They also charged him uh, with desecrating the temple, bringing in a guy named Trophimus, an Asian, a Greek non-Jew, into the temple when he was in Jerusalem. It was a lie. He didn't do it. And the third charge was of sedition, of causing riots. And in Rome, if you caused riots, they would kill you. Paul says, I'm not guilty of any of these crimes. Paul defended himself well. Paul knew that they weren't true. I think Felix knew they weren't true. I think Festus knew they weren't true. Look at 2525. Jump down real quick to 2525. In the year 2525. It's a song. You young people don't know. Because you're culturally inferior to us older people. (laughs) 2525 of Acts. This is Festus. Festus. Love that name, Festus. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. Festus knew that Paul wasn't guilty of these things. So did Agrippa. Look at 26, 31 and 32. Jump to 26, 31 and 32. King Agrippa, after hearing Paul's defense, says the following. And when they, that is Agrippa and Festus, had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free. What's the point? What's the point, church? The point is this. Paul is not a prisoner of Rome. Paul is not a prisoner of Jerusalem because he's not guilty of committing any crimes against either of them. No, Paul is clearly a prisoner of whom? Christ Jesus. Because he's on trial for what? He's on trial for his hope that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that Jesus Christ is Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. That's why Paul is on trial. And he's a prisoner because the trial is ongoing. It's been going on for two years. And the corrupt politicians won't let him go because they want money either from Paul or they want to curry favor from the Jews. So he's in the midst of a political system. He's a prisoner of this system. But friends, trust me, Paul knows he's not a prisoner of Rome or Festus or Felix or the Jews. He's a prisoner of Christ. Listen, Paul is innocent of every charge except for one. Look at 26.6, please. 26.6. Paul tells you what he's guilty of. This is now in the fifth trial before Agrippa. And I'm going to be bouncing back and forth between 25 and 26. The the fourth trial before Festus and the fifth trial before Agrippa. Look at 26.6, what he says to Agrippa. Now I stand here on trial, Agrippa, because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews. O king, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul's innocent of everything except for being a Christian and trusting Jesus as a savior and preaching Jesus as the resurrected Messiah of Israel and savior of the world. But Festus is not going to release Paul. Even though he's innocent of all these charges against Rome and Jerusalem. Why? Because Festus wanted to curry favor with the Jews. He's just like Felix. Look at 25.9. Go back to chapter 25, verse 9. It says there, verse 9, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried 
on these charges before me. Well, Paul, what did Paul know? Paul knew, okay, he was born at night, but it wasn't last night. Paul knew that the Jews were going to kill him if he made the trip between Caesarea on the coast of Israel up to Jerusalem, somewhere along that line, the Jews were going to kill him. And Paul was not afraid to die, but Paul had a mandate from his Lord. What was the mandate, church? You must testify in Rome. So Paul says, I'm willing to die, but I'm not going to die in Jerusalem because God, the resurrected Jesus whom I saw, told me I'm going to go to Rome and testify. I'm happy to die in Rome. So he wasn't evading anything. But he had to go to Rome. So what does Paul do? He appeals to Festus and says, you know what? I'm under Caesar's tribunal. I'm a Roman citizen. According to Roman law, as a Roman citizen, you cannot take me to that kangaroo court in Jerusalem because I've done nothing against those guys. I'm not going to go on the trip. I appeal to Caesar. I'm going over your head, Festus. And Festus knew he had to grant Paul his appeal. You've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Now here's the deal. Paul had hoped to go to Rome as a free man. Remember, Paul has been hearing about going to Rome since really before chapter 23, verse 11. He's had Rome in his heart. If you read the book of Corinthians, which he wrote Corinthians probably when he was in Asia, way back, like a long time ago in this sermon series of Acts, Corey preached about this. And when he was in Asia, he probably wrote Corinthians. He says, I got to go to Rome. I want to go to the ends of the earth. He even talked about going to Spain, which was kind of the ends of the earth of the world at that time. So he knew he was going to Rome. He had hoped he would go to Rome as a free man. He actually should have gone to Rome as a free man. But Festus wasn't going to let him free. So, like Dober and Nietzschmann in 1732 in Germany, Paul who were, those two men were willing to go to St. Thomas as slaves, if that is what it took. Paul was willing to go to Rome as a prisoner, if that's what it took. Paul viewed himself as a prisoner of Christ, bound to his gospel. Do you? Or are you a free agent? Are, are you a contract laborer? <laughs> you know, Lord, I'll sell you my, I'll sell you my, uh, my talents... I'll take my talents to South Beach for the right price. What's your retirement plan, Lord? Do I get stock options? Am I a partner? Do we view ourselves as some privileged class or as prisoners? Are you willing to bind yourself to his gospel, taking it as your message If not, then I pray you would be. And if yes, then the next question is for you and me. And this is the question that drives the sermon. This is the question that drives our lives, I believe, from this text. It's the question God would ask us. Here it is. How do we live as prisoners of Christ bound to his gospel? How do we live as prisoners of Christ bound to his gospel? I want to answer that question in this sermon. I believe this text answers that question. I believe we're going to find the answers here in this scripture. It's the question that God is using to confront us, guys. To confront us. So, How do we live as prisoners of Christ bound to his glory? Point number one, we must first have an encounter with the risen 
Christ. We must first have an encounter with the risen Christ. Paul Paul categorically denied the charges that were made against him by the Jews. But what he did admit to, what he did confess, was the charge of believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and was Israel's Messiah and Savior of the world. This is why Paul was on trial and hence why he was a prisoner. And so Paul was willing to live as a prisoner of Christ because he had had an encounter with the risen Christ. Have you? See, without an encounter with the risen Christ, you and I will not be willing to live as his prisoner. We'll maybe be sort of contract labor. He could be like a a good luck charm we wear around our neck. Or we hang from our mirror in our car. Or we use him to try to get what we want, but his prisoner? Where what he says really means that I, I should do it? Where I go where he sends me? No, no, no. That would be impossible unless we have an encounter with the risen Christ. If you haven't had that, if you're not a Christian, oh, I pray you'd have it today. You're going to hear about Paul's encounter right now, and I pray it would speak to your soul. And if you have had that encounter, but you've forgotten it, oh, may may this refresh it in you. So look with me at Paul describing his encounter with the risen Christ. Chapter 26 now, we're at the fifth trial. We're going to pretty much stay there the rest of the sermon. Look at verse 9. Chapter 26, verse 9. He's speaking to Agrippa, and he says the following. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. I I can only imagine that probably some of those who gave Paul that authority and commission 20 years, 20 some years earlier, were in the crowd that wanted to kill him now. Remember, they're watching. It's a courtroom. He's he's addressing Agrippa, but his accusers are right there. Verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me, and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language. Now, we joke about this, right? You know, what, what will we speak in heaven? For some of you, it's Spanish, right? It's clear. For others, it's English. Hebrew is probably a more safe choice, by the way, okay? But Paul heard it in Hebrew. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Friends, let me tell you right now, it is this encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, this encounter with the risen Christ that turned Paul from a persecutor of Christ and his church to a prisoner of Christ. And it's the only thing that's going to transform you and me from whatever we are, which is not good, into a prisoner of Jesus. 
We must have this encounter with the risen Lord Jesus before we can live as his prisoners. Have you had that encounter, dear non-Christian friend? Are you like Festus that in the middle of Paul's defense, he cries out, he interrupts Festus. I mean, excuse me, Paul. Festus is the governor. Here's the king. Paul's telling the king about the resurrection. He goes, he just stands up and goes, Paul, you're crazy, man. Maybe he didn't say man, but he said, you're crazy. Your great learning has driven you nuts. Maybe you're like Festus this morning. You say, Pino, are you really, I don't even know you, but are you really telling me that you believe that someone who died 2,000 years ago is alive, that he rose from the dead, and that he's with us today? I am. And I'm saying to you, unless you have an encounter with him, you're in trouble. And And you may say to me, well, prove it, Al. And I say, well, maybe I can't prove it, but let me ask you something. If it is true, what are the implications for you? What are the implications for you? Because, see, he is telling you, if he did rise from the dead, that means that he is the Messiah, because I can show you that, and I'd be happy to have that conversation with you from the Old Testament. And if he is the Messiah, and if he is the Savior of the world, and if he is the one coming back to judge everyone, to include you, then he's going to require that you do something. And the first thing that he requires you to do is repent of your sin, of your rebellion. It's against him alone. And believe in him. He's telling you, stop living as if I'm dead. If Jesus were speaking, and he is, by the way, right now, he's saying, stop living as if I was dead, if I were dead, and start living as if I were alive, because I most certainly am. And I'm here to testify to you. Like Paul testified to Agrippa, I'm guilty of the same thing that Paul was guilty of. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that he's the Messiah of Israel. I believe he's the Savior of the world. He is my Savior and my Lord. And I appeal to you like Paul appealed to Agrippa. I pray that you would be like me. In this belief, he called Agrippa to repentance. I call you to repentance. He calls us all to repentance because he's alive, church. And once, once we are prisoners, dear Christian friend, I'm speaking to you now, dear brother and sister in Christ, we need to have an ongoing encounter with the risen Christ through times of reading his word, through times of worshiping with one another. That's what we're doing here, man. We're just, we're rehearsing it. We're encouraging one another. It doesn't feel like he's alive. I haven't audibly heard his voice. Where are you, Lord? And we come together and we say, has another encounter today. I love what Zeke said. Stop thinking about the fact we don't have the drums here today. Stop thinking about it's a little different. Our encounter is with God. Our eyes are with God. Thank you, Zeke, for saying, it's there I need to have the encounter. Through his word, through songs that have rich lyrics that are biblical and godly, through community groups, come to community group. You need that, man. You need to be reminded that this world isn't everything, but Christ is risen. Through the parent youth ministry, through the young adult singles reclaim ministry, through men's groups, women's groups, through one-on-one reading the Bible, we have to have an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And when we do, it changes our life and our life's direction and purpose. We become prisoners. We become prisoners of Christ. And so what does that look like, Al? Once I have this encounter, how do I live as a prisoner of Christ bound to his gospel? Point number two. Well, we obey the risen Christ. We obey the risen Christ. Jump now, go back to chapter 26, look at verse 14. Paul is continuing, he's in the middle of his testimony. Let's pick it up in verse 14, chapter 26. And when 
he had, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Kick against the goads means just resist God. Okay, what's a goad? What's he kicking? No, it's just resisting God, okay? And I said, who are you, Lord? And said, who are you, Lord? There's a comma after who are you. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now here comes the commands. Here comes Jesus now commanding Paul, who's his new prisoner, his new follower. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Listen, it's a life of obedience that, that marks a person who lives as a prisoner of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was willing to obey. He was willing to go to his Rome. And he was willing to go telling people what he knows about the risen Christ with whom he just had an encounter. Look again just briefly at verse 16 and 17. Chapter 26, or 16, just 16. God says to, Jesus says to, to Saul, Paul, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared for you to this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness. A witness of what? To the things in which you have seen me. It's not that complicated, friends. What God has asked us to do, the risen Christ has asked us simply to do this. Go, and tell them what you know. Go and tell them what you know. If you don't know anything, you're not going to go. I don't blame you. I don't think door-to-door evangelism uh, is easy. It's not. But, but even if just you're nervous, if you don't know anything, and you knock on the door, and they open the door, they say, hello. It's like the knock-knock jokes, right? Knock-knock, who's there? And you're just silent. You're mute. Right? You got to know before you go. But he says, go and tell him what you know, what you've witnessed in me. He's alive. I mean, that's enough, right? (laughs) Paul stands up. Today's text is, Jesus is alive. I saw him. (laughs) Now there's more to that, okay? And he would. Where is your Rome, friend? And I'm not talking about foreign missions. Don't even go there, okay? You can go there if you want, but don't go there. There's enough roams right here, like right outside that door. This is a mission field, trust me. 2% evangelical Christians in Miami. Broward's maybe a little more, but not much more. See, my Rome is my neighborhood. My, my Rome are the stores where I shop, the restaurants where I eat. It's my office hallway, trying to say hi to people. 
It's, it's wherever there are friends, people with whom you kind of rub shoulders and with whom you can share. It's where you can go and tell them what you know about the risen Jesus. It's that simple. You just, it's like the gift of hanging out and then talk about what's really important to you. I saw him. He's alive. Have I been successful in this? No. Do I need to grow in this? Absolutely. As a church, we need to grow in this. We need to grow in how to connect others to God, whether it's you or my kids who are believers or whether it's my neighbor who may not be. That should be my burden. It's Paul's burden. It was Dober and Nietzsche's burden to go and tell those slaves what they know. Is it yours? Is it yours? Third point. How do we live as prisoners of Christ bound to his gospel? Point number three. We declare the truth about the risen Christ. So if the first thing we need to do to live as prisoners of Christ bound to his gospel is have an encounter with the risen Christ, yes, we do, ongoingly. And if the second thing is we need to obey the risen Christ, we need to go to our Rome and tell them what we know about our risen Savior. Number three is really the nuts and bolts. We need to declare the truth about the risen Christ. What do we declare once we are in Rome? Verse 18 of chapter 26 is really helpful here, so look at it. There are three things that Jesus commissioned Paul to declare. When he said, you're going to be a witness of what you've seen in me, there are sort of three things that he he tells them you're going to witness of and speak about. Number one, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light That's the number two. And from the power of Satan to God. And number three, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So, how do we describe truth about the risen Christ? First bullet point underneath this one. From verse 18, we are going to open eyes to the reality of the risen Lord Jesus. We're going to simply talk about Jesus, the one crucified, Jesus, the one risen, Jesus, the one exalted, the Messiah, the Savior and Lord who fulfills God's promises. You can listen to my message from last week, actually from the messages in Acts, to access data and then study for yourself the promises made in the Old Testament about a Messiah, a Savior, actually beginning all the way in Genesis about a Savior of the world, and then through Israel starting with with the promises there with Abraham and then moving all the way through. So you become familiar with what to say when you go, so you know before you go. And you go while you know. And you know who you go with. So, go. Yep, lyricist right there. Children's books. We've got to know the promises. Then we've got to believe the promises. And then we need daily encounters with the crucified, risen, exalted Messiah, Savior, and Lord. And as we do that, then we believe the promises. It's a fight of faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When I go to the store, when I go to my friend, I want to talk about Jesus as if he were alive, though sometimes I find myself living as if he were dead. Okay, that's when I go to church. That's when I go to community group. That's when I call people on the phone. That's when I read the word. That's when I have my quiet time. So I'm always understanding, and then I'm going to communicate. 
Second bullet point, what does it look like to describe truth about the risen Christ? Verse 18, so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. The way I've said it here is turn others from darkness to light, from Satan to God, through the gospel of Christ. Oh, friends, don't you see? These motifs are so rich in biblical truth. The light to dark, the darkness to light, that speaks of creation. Remember when God said in creation, let there be light, there was chaos? And part of what he is calling us to do, he's restoring creation, he's redeeming creation, is you go tell them that they're in darkness and I want to take them into light through Jesus Christ. And then the second one, turning their hearts from Satan to God, from the power of Satan to God. Don't you see that this biblical motif in Exodus where God said that Moses would take Israel out of Pharaoh's clutches, and Pharaoh is a type of Satan, and deliver them in the Exodus into the promised land, which is a type of heaven, that the greater Moses, Jesus, has come to deliver us from the greater Pharaoh, Satan, out of his kingdom, out of slavery to Satan, into the promised land. Go, Pino, and tell them that. Go, church, and tell them that. What great news. Satan is defeated. Jesus the king has inaugurated his kingdom. You you can be set free. If you will repent and believe in Jesus from the bondage of Satan, from the horrors of darkness, there's light, there's freedom. There's release from Pharaoh and his slavery and his beatings and his whips on your back. There's a promised land that flows with milk and honey. We should know that. That's what we should tell him when we go. And then how, what's the third way we describe the truth about the risen Christ? Third bullet point, we offer people forgiveness and a place in God's community through the gospel of Christ. Look at verse 18b. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Folks, we offer people forgiveness and a place in God's community through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like to live as a prisoner of Christ bound to his gospel. This is my message. This is what I share with people. I've kind of phrased it this way, this next slide. If it's helpful, this is a synthesis of a bunch of stuff I've read, so none of it's original with me, but the words, I think the way I've said it is, forgiveness happens when Christ opens people's eyes and turns them from darkness to light and liberates them from the power of Satan, reconciling them to God. It's a mouthful, I realize that. But I think that's what they're talking about. Forgiveness happens when Christ opens people's eyes and turns them from darkness to light. Because if you look at verse 18, what does he say? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, comma, So it's the same sentence, the same idea. The result of that is that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So forgiveness happens when Christ, through us, opens people's eyes and turns them from darkness to light, liberates them from the power of God, reconciling them to God. And I could probably add, and I may in a a second version of this, in the covenant community called the church. 
Now, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to open people's eyes, to deliver them from Satan into the power of God. But listen, the Holy Spirit does it, but he does it through you and me. Dober and Nietzschmann understood that, and they were willing to go to St. Thomas and be slaves to be the mouthpiece of God to deliver people from darkness to light and Satan to God. Paul was willing to go as a prisoner to Rome to declare the truth of Christ. Friends, are we willing to be his prisoners right here in Miami in South Florida? We offer people a place in God's community, the church, the place of blessing, the place of peace with God and forgiveness of sins and sanctification from impurity. These all come through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 28. Paul, in his preaching, actually appeals to Agrippa. I mean, he does like, like, get saved now, Agrippa. Now, he does it politely. Look at verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I mean, Paul's coming on to Agrippa strongly. And Paul said, whether a short time I would to God, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day. And the hall was surrounded by commanders and military officials and the highest governors of the whole region were all there that day. And he says, I wish that you would all, those of you who hear me, you might become such as I am. And I could just see Paul. And then he lifts his arms, except for these chains. But I'm chained because I'm a prisoner of Christ. Believe him. Here's the appeal. Dear friends, I am sure Paul would have preferred to go to Rome as a free man to preach the gospel. But he saw himself as a prisoner of Christ, bound to his gospel, and so he gladly went to Rome as a prisoner, not of the Romans or of the Jews, but of Christ. And you know what? Because he was a prisoner, he was able to preach the gospel to Roman rulers and Jewish kings and military commanders, as well as all the Jewish leaders all the way up the line. He had these incredible audiences. This day, I didn't have time to go into it. It was an amazing day. Everybody, it was a who's who. It was an A-list of rulers and kings of that region. So see, this was God's plan to send Paul to preach in Rome as a prisoner. It wasn't Paul's plan. It wasn't Paul's preference. Listen, your will, your way, Lord, I, I sing that today. Things, things don't happen the way I think they should. But see, Paul realized it, and I need to realize it. It's not about me. Paul realized it wasn't about his freedom, but the freedom of those bound in darkness to whom Christ was sending Paul as his prisoner to preach his gospel to these people that were just... They were so pathetically bound. And God had a day of release for them. And he wanted to use Paul. And so, friends, are we willing to live as prisoners of Christ, bound to his gospel? After arriving in St. Thomas in 1732, Johann Dober and David Nietzschmann lived frugally. They preached to the slaves where they had modest success. By 1734, they had both returned to Germany. But other Moravian missionaries continued the work for 50 years afterward, establishing churches in St. Thomas, St. Croix, St. John's, Jamaica, Antigua, Barbados, and St. Kitts. Moravian missionaries baptized 13,000 converts in the West Indies. Someone had to go. Here's where I want to end the sermon. I want to transport us all back to that deck of the ship in the Copenhagen Harbor on that day, October 8, 1732. And I want us to stand. I want us to imagine we're standing next to Johann Dauber and David Nietzschmann. And I want us to remember something. They didn't know if they'd ever come back. 
They had no idea. They knew what they were doing was dangerous. They knew there was a lot of suffering involved. It was not a safe trip. Few were celebrating the trip. On the contrary, most were saying it was foolish and a waste of their lives. There was just a few people on the dock. Some of their family and friends from the Christian community. These people were kind of waving. There was no band playing. There was no celebration. In fact, there was a good chance that what, if you had been there, what you would have seen are lots of tears and heard weeping. And as the lines are being thrown off this wooden, rickety wooden ship, and the gap begins to widen between the ship and the shore, there is a report, and perhaps this report comes from one of those that was on that dock. There's a report that one of the two men, now imagine we're standing next to him, raises his hand and he shouts something over the misty waters of that harbor. He shouts something across the gap. And maybe these would have been the last words that he would have ever shouted to these people he was thinking. So it was important words. And what did he shout? He shouted as loudly as he could, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. He was a prisoner. He was a prisoner. He was a prisoner. Listen, you, you will never be freer than as Christ's prisoner, bound to him and his glorious gospel. Final quote here. True freedom is being a prisoner of Christ. That's true freedom. Matt Papa, who's a songwriter, wrote a song based on this account, The Reward of His Suffering. I know we're running late, but I'd like to sing it. So would, I'm going to bow my head and pray. I'd like the worship team to come up here quickly. Let's just pray. Lord, even as Paul saw himself as a prisoner, your prisoner, 2,000 years ago, and, and as Dober and Nietzsche saw themselves as your prisoner in 17... 32. So, Lord, may we see us ourselves as prisoners. Lord, show us how to live as prisoners of Christ, bound to his gospel. Lord, if there are non-Christians here and they're wondering, they're doubting, I understand that. It is, it, it is, it is, it is quite something that someone would have risen from the dead. But, oh, Lord, it's true, and I pray that you would communicate to their hearts right now that what it means for them to live as a prisoner of Christ, bound to his gospel, is going to be for, mean for them to, to turn from their rebellion against you and you alone and turn to a life of obedience to you as Savior and obey you in your first commandment, repent and believe. And that you would give them that, that gift of, of, of faith and repentance right now and that they would understand that a life as your prisoner is the most fulfilling, adventuresome, free life and joyful life that anyone could ever imagine. And both in this life and in the life to come, Jesus, when you return to judge the quick and the dead, to judge everyone that's ever existed. And for my dear Christian friends, Lord, I pray that this, this, this scripture and this call would not be anything that would condemn, but it would bring their consciences, Lord, in line with your word, and there would be grace and there would be small steps to say, Lord, how can I turn from my life where I've drifted into a life lived for self and my own will and live now a life for God and his will? 
that you would show them what their Rome is, where their Rome is, right here in South Florida. They would go as a prisoner, and as they go, they would know what to share, and they would share it, whether it's the office, whether it's school tomorrow for so many. And Lord, we just sing this song to you as our prayer. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Stand, church. Let's sing this through.